Well, first of all, my name is Nate, one of the pastors here, and so if you're a visitor with us today, I want to welcome you, and uh, we're, uh, we're not fancy, but we are family, and if you don't have a church family, I would encourage you to uh, stick around, and uh, we would love for you to be a part of our family. And so, uh, with that, I do want to give you a quick update on one of our, our family members who's going through a hard time. Uh, I think most of you know that Jenny Frost uh, lost her dad in a tragic skiing accident in Colorado last week. And um, I wanted to let you know two things. One, she sent me a text yesterday just thanking the church for how much love has been poured out towards her and towards Alex over the last uh, several days and weeks. And uh, she really appreciates that. And also she gave me the information of the memorial service, uh, which is going to be coming up. Uh, in February, I think, uh, I believe the 11th, but I will send that out through uh, an email so that you know when and where to, to go if you want to be a part of that. And so continue to pray for them, continue to just let them know that you're, you're here for them. Okay. All right, with that, we are going to look into God's Word, Ephesians chapter 1. We're back in Ephesians. I, I want to thank, well, Perry's not here this morning, but I uh, appreciate him stepping up last second. And uh, yeah, it was not it was not good last week. I was not feeling well. That's the first time in almost I almost made it ten years without missing a Sunday morning because of sickness. But um, very thankful that that Perry was able to to step in last second and and fill in for me. And so I'm thankful to be back. And so I've had two weeks, so I got a lot to say. All right. With that, Ephesians chapter one. We just started walking through the book of Ephesians. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, but also the surrounding churches. This is a letter that would have been passed around. And unlike Paul's other letters that address a specific issue at a specific church, this one doesn't do that. In fact, it reads kind of like an essay because of that. And it's a good summary of Paul's overall theology and really God's heart for the church. And so last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 1, which is really a worship song. Paul starts his letter off with worship, and we walked through that together. And it was a, a celebration of God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And that's a, a key principle that we're going to see throughout the book of Ephesians is unity. And we talked last week, or last time, primarily about God's uni God uniting the, the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, together in Christ. That they would be one new humanity, one new family. But as we walk through the second half of Ephesians, once we get there, you're going to see that this unity pours out, not just between the Gentiles and the, and the Jews, but also just between families. Unity within the family, unity within a marriage, unity between parents and kids. Unity in the most unlikely of places in their day, it was unity between the slaves and their, their owners even. And so, again, last week was this song, and in that song we saw 11 times Paul saying things like, in Christ, or through Christ. And this is an important theme in Paul's writing, that we are in Christ, that we are united to him. And so I want you to picture Jesus, kind of like what we sang earlier today, that Jesus has got his arms wide open, and he's welcoming both the, the Israelites, the original chosen people by God, and 
the rest of the nations, the, the Gentiles, together. And all that trust in Christ now find their identity in him. And so Jesus is called in this song the, the beloved one. He's the beloved child, the chosen one, the blessed one, the predestined one. And now all those who trust in him are united to him. And if, you're, if you share in his identity, that means you now are the beloved one. You are the chosen. You are the blessed. You are the predestined. And so his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His exaltation is our exaltation. And so with this in mind, I want us to read the next section, which is a prayer. So he moves from a, a worship song into a prayer. And so before we dive into this, though, why don't we bow our heads one more time and pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for bringing us to your word, your precious, perfect word that has been revealed to us so that we would know you. And I pray that you would open our eyes to know you intimately. I pray that we would see your heart for us and for your church and that it would change us, it would transform us, that we would leave here inspired to want to tell the world about who you are and what you've done for us and the hope that we have in you. For your glory, Lord. I know we cannot, apart from your spirit working in us, my words mean nothing. Would you fill us with your spirit right now? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse 15 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul says this, for this reason, okay, so he's talking about in light of everything that we just talked about in verses 3 through 14, in light of this song, for, the, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, there's a whole lot to unpack here. And we, we actually may go back into this a little bit next week, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through a lot of it today. And so this is a prayer report, okay? And this is how Paul prayed for the churches. If you've ever wondered, like, how should I pray for other believers in, in other churches. This is a really good example here. Uh, this is a prayer I covet from you towards me 
as I pray this prayer for you also. And I want you to notice a few things about this prayer. Notice this, this prayer is not a crisis intervention prayer, okay? Often, that's what our prayers are, right? That we're, we're praying for some kind of trial or tragedy or suffering or hurting, and we should pray for those things, don't get me wrong. But we see here that we should also pray when things are well. We should pray when times are good. Paul's praying for them because he's heard of their faith and their faithfulness and their, their love for one another. And so yes, absolutely pray for those who are hurting, for those who are struggling, pray for help, but let's also pray for those who are doing well, that God would continue to grow them and, and, and be with them and help them do that. Now also, notice that Paul doesn't pray for their circumstances to change here. I think that's significant. And again, I think it's right to pray for, for circumstances to change, but uh, it's also right for God just to deepen our relationship with him. I'm sure that these Christians that Paul is writing to were going through trials. Persecution was a significant issue back then. But sometimes it's right for us to pray, Lord, if it's your will, change the circumstances. But no matter what your will is, would you use these circumstances to drive our relationship deeper with you? And I think that's the heart of this, this prayer. So let's look at specifically what does he pray for them. Look back at verse 17. That God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so he starts by saying, he, he prays that God would give them the, the spirit of wisdom. Now, if you've got an ESV, you're going to notice that the word spirit is capitalized, and so that their interpretation is that this means he's talking about the Holy Spirit. If you have a different translation, that S may not be capitalized, because there's actually a little bit of ambiguity here. Uh, Paul could mean the Holy Spirit, or he may just be praying that God would give your spirit wisdom. Either way, I don't think it matters a whole lot, but I think it's significant that he's praying for a spirit of wisdom. And wisdom in the Bible is being able to not just know, but to be able to obey what God has commanded. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And often, wisdom in the Bible is tied to trials. And so, when you think of wisdom, when you read in the Bible, it should remind you that this is a, it's the ability, that God, a God-given ability to do what is right in God's eyes, especially when there are trials going on in your life. For example, James chapter 1 starts off, count it all joy when you face various trials. And then almost in the next breath, what is he saying? If you lack wisdom, pray for wisdom. Because in the midst of your trials, that's when you need the strength to be obedient to God. And so Paul is praying here, pray for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That word revelation is fascinating. So in the Greek, it's apocalypsis. Now, when you hear that word, you probably think of the English transliteration, which is apocalypse, right? And what do you think of when you think of apocalypse? Probably end times kind of stuff, end of the world. If you type into Google apocalypse movies, they're all like doomsday kind of stuff. Zombies are coming, there's an asteroid, there, there's something. Everything that is good is unraveling, 
Okay, that's typically what we think of when we think of apocalypse. Paul absolutely does not mean that at all. When he says, when the Bible uses that word apocalypsis, it is not talking about doomsday. Paul has a much different understanding of what's going on here. It's, in fact, the word is translated in our Bibles, revelation. I think that's a good translation. The apocalypsis in the Bible is, it means to, to uncover something. To, to reveal something that had not been seen before. So an apocalypsis in the Bible often is a turning point where somebody's life gets turned upside down because all of a sudden God has opened up their spiritual eyes to get a glimpse at the heavenly realm or to get a glimpse at what, what true reality from his view is. So Paul actually describes his conversion as an apocalypsis. Galatians 1, 11 through 12. He says to the church, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a apocalypsis, a, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he's talking about his experience on the road to Damascus, where the risen Christ appeared to him in a vision and a bright light and actually blinded his physical eyes, but opened his spiritual eyes to see a whole new reality. And it changed his life forever. He, became, he was commissioned as, as a missionary to the Gentiles. Now, one thing you see in that example is that an apocalypsis in the Bible is not the end of the world. It's actually a new beginning. An apocalypsis is, is not the unraveling of good. It's the uncovering or revealing of what is truly good. In the Old Testament, we see tons of examples of apocalypsis. Jacob. After he cheats his, his brother and deceives his father, he, he runs for his life. And, and it's in that moment that God actually reveals himself in a dream and changes the trajectory of Jacob's life. Jacob falls asleep. He sees this stairway that, that goes up to the, the heavens, and there's these angels that are ascending and descending. And above the staircase, God stands there and declares and promises to Jacob and his descendants to give them the land that he promised to, to Abraham and that his family would multiply. And Jacob wakes up and he just sees everything differently after that. He says, he says this, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He, he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So often an apocalypse is a glimpse into this, this heavenly realm where God opens somebody's spiritual eyes to see what they could not see with their natural eyes. I'll give you another example. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. And uh, this is just a cool story, too. Uh, King Aram is trying to capture the prophet Elisha. And so he sends a big army, surrounds Elisha, and uh, Elisha's servant wakes up and looks, and the, the, the whole city that they're in is surrounded by the Syrian army. And he does what I think any of us would do. He panics, of course, and he, he cries out to Elisha, uh, what are we going to do, right? And Elisha just calmly says, don't be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. And, and I think if we were that servant in that moment, we're thinking, Elisha, like, what you been smoking, right? Are you high? <laughs> but then Elisha begins to pray. He prays this. He says, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
So, of course, it wasn't his physical eyes that he was opening. It was his spiritual eyes to see what only God could see in that moment. God had opened his eyes to the true reality that it wasn't just, they were not the ones actually surrounded. It was the Syrian army that was surrounded by a much bigger army. And so, back here in Ephesians, Paul is praying that the church would have an apocalypsis. Like he had had, right? Let me read it again, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of apocalypsis, revelation, in the knowledge of him. And, and that word knowledge there, it's not just like an intellectual knowledge. It, it's a very intimate knowledge. And then listen to what he says in verse 18. Having what? The eyes of your hearts enlightened, your spiritual eyes, that you may know him. Well, specifically what? Know what about him? Three things. The hope to which you are called, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power towards us who believe. All right, I want to break those three things down. So he wants, he's praying that we would know as a church the hope to which you are called. And so as Christians, we take on a posture of hope. What is hope? Hope is believing that your current circumstances don't define the meaning of your life. Biblical hope is recognizing that our current circumstances, no matter what's going on, will not last forever, and that God's promises to make all things new will come true. And so Christian hope is rooted in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because we see in the resurrection the power that was poured out to bring life out of death and to show us that even the worst of circumstances are never the end of the story. And so Paul prays that they would know the hope of their calling. Okay? And so what's their calling? Well, their calling, as we saw back in the song, is to be part of this covenant community, to, to be the chosen, to be the elect, to be the predestined. So this is how Peter put it. Peter put it this way in um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, it's a chosen, we are a chosen race, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people, he's talking about the Gentiles, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Paul is praying that the church would wake up to this reality, this hope, this calling. It's the same calling that was given to Abraham that his family would be blessed and be a blessing to the rest of the families or the rest of the nations. Jesus said it this way to his disciples. He said, look, you're going to be my witnesses. Paul is praying for the church's spiritual eyes will be open to see our true identity in Christ, that we are God's adopted children empowered by his spirit to be witnesses to the nations, to spread the blessing of the good news of King Jesus coming to redeem us and to rescue us. And so we're going to see 
in chapter 2 that Paul is going to go into a whole lot more detail about why this is such a hope-filled calling. It's because we were dead and now we've been made alive. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. It's a hope-filled calling because we get to share the hope that we have received with the rest of the world. It's a privilege to be a part of God's plan of redemption. And then secondly, Paul prays that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now when Paul talks about saints here, he's not talking about like St. Peter or St. Patrick. He's talking about all believers who have, people that have placed their trust in Christ. And it's interesting, Paul is really using some Old Testament language here. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you, talking about the Israelites, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. In other words, out of the fire of slavery. To be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. And so you notice there, the Israelites were described as being God's inheritance. Just a few chapters later, in Deuteronomy 14, 2, very similar, we read, For you are a people, holy, in other words, you are a people, you are set apart, holy, to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And this is not God playing favoritism with the Israelites. This is the idea of election that we talked about last time in the Bible. That God chooses one people on behalf of the many peoples to to bless them and to to be a blessing, to bring his blessing to the rest of the peoples. And so you look at the life of the Israelites and how did they do with that? (laughs) Not well at all. But here comes Jesus then, who is raised up out of the Israelites and he is able to fulfill what the rest of the nation was not able to do through his death, his resurrection. And and now, all of us, all those who are in Christ through faith, we now share in that blessing that Christ has poured out. We share in this this glorious inheritance. And and I want you to notice, like Paul is not praying that our eyes would be open to know an inheritance that God is giving to us. I think often like we read passages like this and we're, we've got this hyper-individualistic lens that we look through and, and that's how we read this passage. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that we are God's inheritance. Paul wants us to see that we are God's chosen people, his treasured possession. And he's using language that in the past had only ever been used to describe the Israelites. But now, because of Christ, in Christ, we are unified to be one family together, and we now share in this inheritance. Paul is praying that the church, again, would wake up to this glorious reality that our eyes would be open, that we would see that we are now God's inheritance. Do you believe that? That you are God's chosen people that you are part of his inheritance to be a blessing to the rest of the world third 
Paul prays that the church would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, when we think of power, we typically think of control. We think of being able to do whatever we want to do. And in our culture, we're fairly jaded when it comes to power because we've seen it being abused all over the place. And so even as, as, a, as a church, we often we take a look at passages like this and we turn them and we twist them into like theology of a victorious Christian life where everything goes good for you all the time or name it and claim it and prosperity. And the reality is that's just not true for most people. But that's not the kind of power that Paul has in mind here. In fact, Paul explains what he means by this power. Look back at verse 19. This is the kind of power that he has in mind. He says, it's according to the working of his great might, of God's great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heaven, in, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also of the one to come. So the power that Paul has in mind is the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and seated him in a position of power in the heavenly realm. That's the power that he's talking about. Paul has in mind not the power to do whatever we want to do, but power that brings life out of death. It's a power that takes what is corrupt in us and makes it new. Later on, he's going to call it, uh, we have this new self, or collectively, we have this new humanity. It's a power that is greater than any, any earthly power. It's a power that's greater than any heavenly power. It's a power that's greater than anything now or in the age to come. Jesus explained it this way to his disciples. Again, he, he said, Look, you're going to receive power through the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses, to be my representatives, to, to spread my love and my mercy and to spread the good news that, that Jesus came to save sinners. So the power that Paul has in mind is a God-given power that creates in us love for him and for each other. It's a power that produces in us, we're going to see later on, the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience. It's an upside-down kind of power that produces humility instead of pride. And unity instead of division and dominance. It's a power that produces a radical love for one another. It's meant to be the mark of the church. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. People will know that you're my disciples. How? By how often you attend church. No. How much you read your Bible. No. By how much you love one another. Care for one another. That's the kind of power that Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see the immeasurable power to transform us from the inside out, to see that happen. And I imagine Paul probably prayed this prayer often for the churches that he established. And I think it's a pretty good testimony that that prayer was answered because we're still worshiping King Jesus 2,000 years later. And I believe that this prayer is still being answered today in the midst of us. And I think it would be appropriate for us as a church family, 
to take a moment right now and pray this prayer for each other and for the churches around us and the church as a whole. And so I'm going to encourage you to just take a couple minutes with the people around you. And if you see anybody that's sitting by themselves, invite them to come over to pray with you. But I want you to spend a, just a couple minutes praying that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know, intimately know, the hope of our calling, the glorious riches of his inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. So why don't we get together and pray just for a few minutes, and then I'll close us in prayer.